0: Well, thank you, Dr. Swain and congregation for that singing, stirring our hearts together in greater affection for our Lord Jesus Christ. I invite you this morning to open your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, we're looking together this morning at Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 39. Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 39. I have the privilege these days in my local church setting, I've been for the past few months teaching through the Gospel of Mark, and so I have the great joy and also the ongoing dilemma of every week when I teach from the Gospel of Mark, I think I'd really like to preach that passage to the seminary community as well. Well, this morning I'm going to do just that, a text I got to teach through, preach through a few months ago, and now get to draw our attention together here in this place this morning. Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 39, and I hope you'll keep your Bible open as we go through it, as we walk through this text together. The title of the sermon is, Too Busy Not to Pray. Too Busy Not to Pray. Beginning in verse 29, with particular focus in verse 35. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew With James and John. Now, Simon's mother in law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and he raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her and she waited on them. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Early in the morning, verse 35, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon, his companion, searched for him they found him and they said to him, everyone is looking for you. He said to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And he went into their synagogues, throughout all of Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. Let's pray. Father, we bow to you in this moment of worship. And Father, we have sang great hymns of the faith. We've read your word We've prayed to you, and now we come to the central part of the service when we ask to hear from you through your preached word. And, Fathers, we begin the new semester. We have syllabus shock. We have responsibilities mounting. All is before us. And, Father, I pray this morning that the message we see radiating from these verses of our Lord's prior commitment to communion with you would instruct us much and set our priorities in this place accordingly. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Too busy not to pray. That is the takeaway from this text that I want to impress upon us this morning in this place. As we think about prayer, I'm reminded of the quip by Martin Luther who once said that he had so much to do that day that he had determined to pray twice as long. Spurgeon, the great preacher who we reflect on here periodically, known throughout the world for his pulpit ministry, also was known as a champion of prayer. The great American evangelist D.L. Moody, who once heard him preach in London and upon returning, was asked by a colleague if he heard Spurgeon preach, and he said, yes, I heard him preach. But more importantly, more movingly, I heard him pray. Too busy not to pray is an inverse logic, isn't it? But it is a true and necessary logic at the same time. Because we live in a busy age. We live in a distracted age. We live in an age of misplaced priorities. We live in an age of heightened expectations for ourselves and placed upon us by others. We live in an age with an abundance of entertainment options. We live in an age where we flow to about, whether we realize it or not, so very often, so greatly distracted by things that are so very, very trivial. How often have you asked someone, how are you doing, for them to say, we're doing well, but we just don't have much to do these days? Everyone talks about how busy they are, right? How much they have to do. It's as though it's a, a rite of passage, a credential of importance to speak to of an overflowing to-do list, a hectic pace. Of life, We find ourselves in these verses this morning with Jesus experiencing an extraordinary, even by his standards, 24 hours of ministry. In fact, recall the context. Look back with me in verse 21. In verse 21, we see that they come into Capernaum. Capernaum, this, this fishing town, the Northwest Sea of Galilee. Fishing is his primary commerce there. And Capernaum, as you may recall, becomes Jesus' adopted hometown. The hub of his ministry, the place he goes back to so very often. Nazareth, his hometown, 40 miles to the east, did not receive him, but Capernaum did. And so Jesus is there. And beginning in verse 21, we see this remarkable sequence of ministry events. Notice with me in verse 21. He enters Capernaum. They enter Capernaum, he and the four. And immediately on the Sabbath, he enters the synagogue, and he begins to teach. So we see in places in the Gospels where this was his custom, right? He goes into the synagogue, this, this local gathering place, where on the Sabbath, the Jewish people would come together, and a rabbi or a lay leader, some instructor, would get up and teach from the Old Testament or teach from other spiritual rabbinical writings. And so Jesus goes into Capernaum, and what appears to many to be just another Sabbath Just another synagogue gathering of of scores or perhaps 100 or so people there. Jesus goes in and Jesus steps up. In verse 21, he begins to teach Sabbath morning, what we would think of as a Saturday. But it's no ordinary synagogue gathering. It's no ordinary lesson from a rabbi. Verse 22, they were amazed at his teaching. They are astonished at his teaching. They are blown away by his teaching, and he's there, and they're riveted by it. They're there, and just as he is teaching, someone in the minute, in the synagogue with an unclean spirit cries out, shouts out in agony. Why? Because the Son of God is teaching, speaking the Word of God, and in this moment, this demonic individual convulses, shouts out, Cannot take it, cries out, no doubt, frightening everyone in the room. What does he say? Verse 24 What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us collectively, demonic forces? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This demon-possessed individual speaks words of divine truth here that Jesus is the Holy One of God. Jesus rebukes him, verse 25, says, Be quiet and come out of him. Convulsions overtake this man, verse 26. the unclean spirit cries out, comes out of him. In verse 27, they are all amazed. Of course they are. This is a synagogue gathering unlike they've ever experienced. Jesus speaks with authority, unlike their rabbis. This great spiritual confrontation takes place. Jesus casts this demon out of this man. And so they leave the huddle, they leave the gathering, they leave the synagogue, verse 27, and they are astonished. They are amazed. They're saying, what have we beheld? What is this? Who is this? This new teacher, this new teaching with authority, he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Thus is the beginning of our Lord's public ministry in the gospel of Mark. In the synagogue, performing his first miracle, the first of 37 miracles recorded in the gospel, specifically the first here showing his power over the spiritual realm and casting out this demon in their midst. That's the morning of ministry. Notice verse 29. Here I want to take a a greater focus here in verse 29. This is where our text really begins to take shape for us this morning. So they leave the synagogue in verse 28. They walk in verse 29. Immediately they head over to the house, the house of Peter. So who goes? They're going to Peter's house. Andrew's with them. James and John, these four have been preceded, have been called by Jesus in preceding verses. They go to this house. Now, interestingly enough, if you go to Capernaum, like I had the privilege of doing with so many of our faculty and senior administrators here this summer, you go to Capernaum, you can only see the Sea of Galilee and the beauty of it, but you can also go to, to the ruins, the, 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 the ruins and the stones and the place of the synagogue. And then, just a short distance away, just a matter of yards away, you can go to the ruins of this very house, Peter's house. Archaeologists have been able to determine with high degree of certainty that this is the place that's been excavated, this very house. But don't think of a pedestrian little gathering that you might find down the street here. Think of a structure, a structure suitable to to house many individuals in a central gathering place such that the church tradition teaches us and archaeology confirms that the early church met in this dwelling place and etchings on the walls indicate just that, that it was an early place for Christians to gather and worship there in Capernaum. But this day, Christians aren't gathering this day. In Peter's house, his mother-in-law is there and she, verse 30, is quite ill. Seriously ill. So they leave the synagogue, Jesus in the four. They walk down the street, they go into Peter's house, and his mother-in-law was there. And yes, this is an indication that Peter evidently was married. We don't know where his wife is. Maybe Mark just doesn't mention her here because she's not relevant. Maybe she's not at home. Maybe she's deceased. We don't know. But, but Peter clearly has a mother-in-law. And so they go into the house, and they go in verse 29, into the house, verse 30, Now, Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, a high fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. So you can see the gears turning. This is the master. He's unlike any other rabbi. He just cast out a demon. He's called us to follow him. She has a high fever, indicating she has a severe infection. Evidently, she's on death's door. Could Jesus help her? Notice verse 31. So he came to her, and he raised her up, taking her by the hand. And the fever left her, and she waited on them. What takes place in verse 31? The second miracle, the first healing that Jesus performs in the gospel of Mark, we see taking place where Peter's mother-in-law is there. She's infirm. She evidently is quite ill, high fever, significant infection. She's on her deathbed, we may say, we may think, and Jesus goes in, and Jesus touches her, and Jesus raises her up, and she is immediately healed. She is so quickly healed. Verse 31 tells us that she waits on them, she serves them. The picture is literally her springing to life, springing to health, and fixing lunch straight away, which any good mother in law would do, right? My mother in law was in town when I preached this text a couple months back, and I took great joy in emphasizing that phrase in her presence. What do we see taking place here? We see our Lord demonstrating his own deity. We see our Lord demonstrating his own power. We see our Lord speaking and touching and transforming Peter's mother-in-law in in an instant. And by the way, that's how Jesus' miracles happen. Don't miss that. When Jesus heals, you are healed. When Jesus heals, the healing is instantaneous. There's no rehab needed, no follow-up appointments, no annual scans, no ongoing medication. He heals instantly. He heals completely. You don't see in the gospel someone going from the wheelchair to crutches or from the crutches to physical therapy. No, you see that healing being instantaneous, that healing being complete, that healing being verifiable. It's not like a mysterious headache or a mysterious back pain. No, it's a, a verifiable healing. It, it takes place usually impromptuly, not in some controlled environment where it's engineered perhaps by disciples, but it's some impromptu gathering most often where a person comes to Jesus or is brought to Jesus or encounters Jesus. And it takes place publicly. And are these miracles not impressive? The blind, the lame. Even the dead. And get this, we know that Jesus' miracles take place. As you read the Gospels carefully, they take place in such massive number. It's as though He practically eradicates illness and disease everywhere He goes. As I mentioned, there are 37 specific miracles recorded in the Gospels for us, but there are thousands upon thousands alluded to. So much so at the end of the Gospel of John, he says, if these books were to record all that he's done, all the books in the world could not contain his works, right? So why does Jesus do this? Is this to like subsidize first century health care? No, he does it, we are told, again and again, first and foremost, to authenticate his ministry. The message that he's preaching, a message of repentance and his personhood that he indeed is the Son of God. Yes, of course, as well, we see the heart of compassion that moves him, right? that moves him so very often to heal, to care for, and so I do not want to overlook that or gloss over that. But fundamentally, it is to authenticate his ministry, and he does so out of a heart of compassion and love. And so that is what's taking place here. So imagine the scene, okay? You're at that synagogue. You're in that assembling hall. You're there with other men and women. And you went into that building, to that gathering place, thinking there was going to be any like uh, uh, just like every other synagogue service that began at the appointed hour and ended rather dully at the appointed hour to conclude. But that morning, something electric happened. The one who stood up to speak spoke as one unlike anyone they'd ever heard before. What is more, a demon cried out, and on the spot, that teacher cast out the demon. Everyone leaves a synagogue a buzz. Everyone leaves the synagogue with their heads spinning. And then they process across the street, Jesus in the four, and no doubt, likely, others are there as well. This woman who they know, who they love, is near death. And Jesus goes up, and Jesus touches, and Jesus heals. And she doesn't like kind of sort of moan and kind of sort of roll over, and maybe three weeks from now she'll be better. She gets up. She sits up, she moves about, prepares lunch, resumes life in an instant, signifying so very clearly that this man is the Son of God and thus enjoys and knows divine authority and divine power. What takes place in Capernaum that day? I'll tell you what takes place. Everyone goes home. Everyone goes to their places, their residence. Everyone goes back to follow their Sabbath expectations and, and regulations and they go home and they're saying to friends and family, everyone they can on the way, you are not going to believe what happened at church today, synagogue today. You're not going to believe it. And you're not going to believe not only did he cast out the demon, not only he speak with authority, you're not going to believe he actually, he actually has healed We've heard of Elijah. We've heard of Elisha. We've heard of the power of God's working through individuals in generations past. But in our midst, a man is here who is healed. Imagine the scene. Recall the times. No modern medicine. No anesthesia. No Novocaine. No morphine. No ibuprofen. No pain relievers of any kind. No antibiotics. No hospitals. No ambulances. No medicine man that you wanted to see. No surgery, no epidural, no no nothing. To be an adult was to be a walking collection of aches and pains, of injuries and illnesses, of mysterious ailments, of unknown causes, and of no known cures. Diseases and diagnoses that we would come to know as cancer and heart disease and hemophilia and diabetes and paralysis and pneumonia and migraines and strokes and dementia and leprosy and infections and glaucoma and broken bones and abscessed teeth and urinary tract infections and kidney stones and Alzheimer's and all of that and more. They know. Suffering was the norm. Infant mortality high. Pain constant. Constant death always near you wanted healing you needed healing and the only thing more than you wanting healing for yourself is you wanting healing for your son or daughter for your mother or father for your spouse for your loved one for your neighbor for your friend and all of a sudden in that cultural setting In that historical moment, a man shows up claiming and presenting himself as the son of God, speaking with authority, casting out demons, showing his power over the spiritual realm, and now healing this lady, showing his power over the physical realm. What's happening in Capernaum that day? I'll tell you what's happening. Everybody is wanting to come see Jesus. They go home. They hear They look in the face of their agonizing seven-year-old daughter. They look into the eyes of their ill spouse. They look into the face of their deformed mother. They look into the face of their deaf son. All these illnesses are around and they're wanting and they're ready to come, ready to storm this house, but there's a problem. It's the Sabbath. Notice verse 32, when evening came, imagine you're there and you have just received word, not from some nut job, but by a family or friend, perhaps you've seen yourself, there is a man in town that can heal. And you have this urgent need. Your loved one has this urgent need. You want to meet this man. And you can imagine in your mind's eye, can't you? That father looking out the window, waiting on the sun to set. That mother looking out the window, waiting on the sun to set. That spouse looking out the window, waiting on the sun to set. And just as the sun is set and the Sabbath expectations have been, have been been have been met and the restrictions have been lifted, the streets flooding with people. Verse 32, evening has come, the sun has set, and they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. Of course they do. They are flooding this house. Verse 33 tells us the whole city had gathered at the door. Of course they have. Everyone's coming. You'd be there if you didn't have a need or know someone had a need. You'd be there just to spectate it because this is a spectacle. You're there. They're there. Everyone's there. Verse 34, he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. Not many as in many of the ill were healed. Many as though many as many of the people in Capernaum who had illnesses, they were healed. Why these people? Why the ill? Why the demon-possessed? Because to authenticate the power, yes, but because that was the common plague of the day, illness. And then, yes, demon possession is ramped up and demonic activities that feed or pitch in the gospel. Why? Because you may be thinking, well, when you read the Old Testament, yeah, you see Satan doing some things and demonic activity occasionally. You read deeper in the New Testament, you see Satan working, yes, and demonic activity occasionally. But why in the Gospels, on every page, is there a demon somewhere being cast out or a demon somewhere being confronted? Why? Because the Son of God is there. And all hell literally breaks loose because the Son of God is there to fulfill his mission of redemption. So you bet there's demonic activity everywhere. So we get the picture, verse 34, of him being flooded with those who have a physical need, flooded with those who are under the sway or influence of demonic activity, and they're there, and Jesus speaks to them, and Jesus heals them, and Jesus touches them. And the picture is, this goes late into the night. What a divine picture here, a divine timetable we see taking place with Jesus there, demonstrating his power, his power over these people, his power over these circumstances, the power Jesus has demonstrated. Interestingly enough, why does he so often tell others not to speak, whether demons or those he's healed? two reasons I think are pretty clear. Number one, because of the divine chronology and timetable he's on. And second of all, because the more who are aware of the healing, the more people are going to come. And again, Jesus's fundamental mission was not just to camp out in one town and be like a, 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 a gifted doctor who, who has bookings from morning to night. His mission was to go to preach the message of the kingdom the power Jesus demonstrated. Now notice with me in verse 35 and this is where we want to drill down for a few minutes today. The prayer Jesus prioritized. Again, remember what we picked up from verse 21, the synagogue going to Peter's mother Peter's house, healing the mother-in-law flooded with people from the city and the surrounding areas all deep into the night. All that is taking place in less than 24 hours. Verse 35, we're getting close to the 24-hour mark. Verse 35 tells us in the early morning, while it was still dark, the picture is Jesus of limited sleep. He got up, he left the house, goes away to a secluded, secluded place, the wilderness, and he's there praying. So he gets up. still dark. He makes his way out, and he's praying. Notice verse 36. Simon his companions, they're searching for him. Peter, disciples, are searching for him. And they find him, verse 37, they say, everyone is looking for you. This is like a Veiled, thinly veiled rebuke, we might say. We've been—it's like your child is lost in. The, we have been looking for you. We've been waiting on you. Dinner was at six. Why are you not home at six fifteen? It's a rebuke. They bring him and they say, "Everyone is looking for you. We've been waiting." We've been looking, and you can see the disciples, their heads are spinning. It's what they've beheld the past 24, years, for, for past 24 hours. They're ready to take this show on the road. They're ready to see this movement build. This is exploding in their midst. Jesus, the people are demanding you. Everyone is looking for you. Where are you? So why in the world is Jesus, after 24 hours of a ministry pace that is more phonetic than any of us can imagine. And yes, in his humanity, he felt that. And before, ministry opportunities, given what he did the day before, that are more expansive than any of us can imagine, awaiting him. Why is this moment, this commitment, why does Jesus prioritize such prayer? And by the way, all the excuses are there, are they not? He's tired, phenomenally long day, late night. He's busy again. The prospects of ministry before him, the to-do list, ministerial speaking, even of good things, are there. He's spiritually committed again. He's preparing sermons, so to speak. He's doing the Lord's work, so to speak. Uh, He could resume healing at any moment. All the excuses are there. We might say, "I got a sermon to prepare." Have people to counsel. Have papers to write. Have Greek to memorize. The excuses are always there. There's a stinging word of warning here for us in the room today that we don't let ministry keep us from Jesus. That we're always alert to the simple fact that there is a barrenness and busyness very often. So why does Jesus prioritize prayer? We understand Jesus is the God-man, fully man and fully God. In his humanity, he had needs and desires similar to our needs and desires, to eat and to sleep, to rest. He had also desires here, spiritually speaking, not too unlike ours, meaning here for two reasons in particular, communion with the Father and for spiritual strength for the task ahead of him. And those are desires and needs that we do have as well. A need and desire to commune with the Father. A need and desire to seek and to receive and to sustain spiritual strength for the work that God has called us to do. You see? You see the priority, right? The prayer Jesus prioritized. Notice with me quickly and finally here, verses 38 through 39, the preaching Jesus pursued. So notice what he says, verse 38. Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also. That's what I've come to do. The disciples want to set up shop. They have a movement. They're catching a tiger by the tail, setting up shop there, and the masses will come to them. But Jesus, you get the picture of like, I, I've kind of done it here in Capernaum. I've taught the synagogue. I've demonstrated my authority. I've met human needs. Additional demonstrative authority of the demons and over, over the, the lame, the ill. But my work now is to preach to preach the message of repentance for the kingdom of God is at hand, to preach the gospel. And so he says, let us go, let us take the message to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came to do. Healing as spectacular, healing as sweet and desired and attractive. It's a sideshow. I came to preach a message of forgiveness. Why not just heal all day? Why not just feed the hungry all day? Because ultimately, Jesus' work is a heart work. Ultimately, our work ultimately is a heart work. And to do that heart work, to carry out that heart work as we ought, we must have our hearts recurringly being worked on as well. And that takes place first and foremost through the word of God and through coming to the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we rejoice with you and thank you for what we've seen. And Father, we pray this morning that the words of promise we see here, the words of priority we see here from Jesus, would it so motivate us to delight in the communion we have with you, to prioritize it, to pursue it, to cherish it, to relish it, to delight in it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.